As we continue to look at Romans chapter 8 from uh, verse 15 moving onward, I just want to remind you of the main point of the previous verses of this chapter. Because Paul has laid out very clearly for us that he says, you're either going to act according to your sinful nature and die, or you're going to be led by the Spirit and live. And so the invitation is to set our minds on the things of the Spirit and to be led by the Spirit. And so one of the most important things that we need to understand is what he says there in verse 9, that if you belong to Jesus Christ, you have the Spirit of Christ. Because anyone who does not have the Spirit, right, does not belong to him. That was really the connection we saw between verses 13 and 14. We saw that one of the things that the Spirit does to show us that we are children of God is that he leads us. He leads us to put to death the deeds of the body, and that leading is proof of our sonship. Because verse 14 told us that all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. And so we also saw there in verse 15 that the Spirit causes us then to cry out these words, Abba, Father, Daddy, right? It's the spirit of adoption. When he says spirit of adoption, this is not another spirit. It's another way of describing the Holy Spirit, okay? And so this is a work of the Holy Spirit that causes us as believers in Jesus Christ to cry out, Abba, Daddy, Father. This is proof by the Spirit that you and I are children of God. In his letter to the Corinthian church, Paul writes these words. He says, no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. What he's saying there is every time you and I say Jesus is Lord, the Holy Spirit is bearing witness with our spirit. And so there's two cries that come from the Holy Spirit. Write these down. Number one, Jesus is Lord, and the second one is Abba Father. Jesus is Lord and Abba Father. And I think those two statements show the change that God is producing in us. When we, we say that Jesus is Lord, that is a posture of humility, that's a posture of submission. We're saying he's Lord and he's master, and so we are subject to him, he's in charge. And hear me today, our flesh does not want to say that. Our flesh would much rather be in charge, and so therefore it takes a work of the Holy Spirit within us to say something like this. But the statement, Abba, Father, is this joyful, childlike posture of confidence that he's also my father. And so the humble, hope-filled cry of the believer is that Jesus is Lord and God is my Father. And out of that posture and out of that declaration, our lives are led by the Spirit of God. Verse 16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So again, he's saying this is the evidence that we're children of God. It's the, the testimony of the Holy Spirit at work in our lives. As God's children, born again by the Spirit of God, we know where we stand with the Lord because the Holy Spirit testifies to our spirit that it is so, right? And, and so this is what we often refer to as the assurance of salvation. The fact that, that you can know that you can know that you're a child of God. You know that today? That you can be certain because you are led by the Spirit of God. And what Paul is really saying here is we don't have to wonder if we're believers or not. We don't have to wonder, am I saved or not? No, God's children know who they are and they know whose they are. Now, according to Jewish law, everything had to be established by two or three witnesses. And so there are two witnesses here to your salvation. Number one, it's your own personal witness, right? You can say, man, I know. I remember that day that I surrendered my life to Jesus, right? You have that personal witness. Number two, though, is the witness of the Spirit at work in your life. Every child of God has the witness of the Spirit within them. 
Verse 17 lets us know why we need to hang on, though, to this, this promise that God is our Father. This verse is amazing news, but it has a scary side. It says that, he writes this, And if children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Two amazing truths packed into one verse. Number one, that we are heirs with Christ. That is amazing in and of itself, right? We are heirs with Christ, and therefore we receive a great inheritance. Number two, we're going to have to suffer in order to receive it. And so if you focus on that first truth, what is the inheritance that's promised to us? Now, usually when we think of that word inheritance, we think of something we received when someone has died, but God is not dead, right? And, and in the Hebrew culture, though, understand this, the sons of a father were heirs even while their father was alive. Remember the parable of the prodigal son. The younger son comes to his dad and he says, I I want my share of the inheritance. And it's given to him. Why? Because he was an heir even while his father was alive. Of course, we know he goes off and he squanders everything and he finally, he comes back home and the older son is not happy about it. He squandered all of this and the older son begins to complain. What does his dad say? He says, all that I have is yours. Of course, in that story, the father had the ultimate say because of the respect that was due to him. But if we think about Jesus as the Son of God, what has Jesus inherited because that is ours? After his resurrection, he proclaimed to his disciples, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me, therefore go. He says, I have the authority, therefore you go in that authority. Why? Because you're an heir with me. And so when we are in Christ, we are heirs with Jesus because he calls us brothers. But if we're an heir of God, think about what that means. It means that we will inherit what belongs to God. And God owns the whole world. Psalm 24, 1, David writes, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and all who dwell therein. And so what is our inheritance? It is the world and all that's in it. It is the nations. It is all things. Psalm 2, 8, ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. God made absolutely everything. You know that today? And he can still make anything from nothing. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.9 that it has not even entered the mind of man the things that God has prepared for those who love him. But very practically speaking, what does this mean that we are heirs with Christ? Does does that mean that whatever I ask of God, he's just going to give it to me, right? I, I mean, if he owns it all and I'm his child, then I can just name it and claim it, right? Hear me today. Really, our inheritance is our hope. Our inheritance is our hope and our future glory. And that hope is not that you're going to get whatever you want when you want it. No, our hope is that we belong to the very God of the universe. Our hope is that he's going to be glorified, and our greatest desire then becomes for him to be glorified. And because he is sovereign over the affairs of man, the greatest desire is going to come to pass whether we see it or not. God is sovereign. What does that mean? It means that even the negative things in your life, will serve you in the end. All things will serve God's glory and your everlasting joy. All of this comes from being his child. Parents, you know this. You want to give your children the very best, right? Every parent wants to leave their children with something that will bless their lives. But really, our great inheritance is not the things of this world or or, or the things of this world. Our greatest inheritance is God himself. The great joy of our hope as believers is that one day we will see the glory of God himself. John describes it in Revelation 21.3. He says, 
And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Church, this is our ultimate inheritance. It is the Lord himself. And hear me, if you love his gifts today, just think about how wonderful the giver of those gifts must be. And I think what an insult it would be to take a gift from someone's hand and delight in the gift more than the giver. Our inheritance is God himself. He is our portion, amen? You and I, we were made for him. And so every good thing that we receive in life is meant to to reveal more of his glory. Every blessing in your life should turn back as praise to God. And so it is the sovereignty of God that gives us hope. It is knowing that we are heirs with Christ. It's that connection with him that's our hope because we know that God rules all things. You believe that today? That God rules all things. He is sovereign. Well, you can say you believe that, but sometimes, let's be honest, it's a challenge to believe in the world we live in, right? Because there are some awful, awful things that happen. There are some things that happen to us. There are things that happen to those around us that are incredibly difficult. But here's what I know today, that God is good. And I know that he can't help but be good. And so if I am an heir with Christ, then whatever has come to pass in my life, it was for God's glory And because I am ultimately his, it's for my good. But I can only believe that today if I trust and lean on the sovereignty of God. That's the only way that you and I can have hope in the midst of difficult circumstances. When we finish the book of Romans, I I think we're going to head back to the Old Testament. And we're going to look at one of my favorite books, the book of Daniel. And a lot of people look at the book of Daniel and they think it's simply a book about praying and receiving answers to prayer, right? Daniel prays and he gets the answer. Like, Daniel's about to be put to death, and so he prays to God for the interpretation of the dream, right? And he receives it. Daniel's thrown into a lion's den, but he prays and he's miraculously delivered. But how many of you know there were probably many prayers that Daniel prayed while in exile in Babylon that were never answered? Because Daniel is, is a man that's living in the midst of exile. It's likely that he's seen members of his family killed. He's hauled off as a slave to a foreign land. He's brought into a pagan culture and forced to serve a pagan king. Man, he's a slave. He's not a a free man. He's not even free to worship God in his sanctuary. This is Daniel's lot for his life. He is a eunuch. That means he's been castrated. Hello? He has no future beyond himself. He has no wife, he has no family, he has no children, and yet his story is a story of hope. Why? Because he knows that the godless kingdom that he's forced to serve will not last. That kingdom will be conquered by another kingdom, and that kingdom will be conquered by another kingdom, but Daniel knows ultimately he serves a king who is seated on a throne that cannot be destroyed. And so he trusts fully in the sovereignty of God. Again, it's the sovereignty of God, church, that gives us hope. When we talk about, we're going to talk more about that when we get to the book of Daniel, but you need to know that today in your situation, in your circumstance. It's the sovereignty of God that can bring hope. But there's one more part of our inheritance we can't miss. It's there in verse 23. Paul refers to it as the, the redemption of our bodies, right? And the reason it's so important is if we are going to enjoy the world that is to come, if we're going to enjoy everything in that world, then we need to have bodies that are capable, think about this, of deeper joy than the bodies we presently have. So we need to get rid of all the pain. We need to get rid of all the tears of this world, right? Verse 17, it talks about being glorified with him. That means that we will share in the glory of God in the sense that we will be conformed to his image. 
we will be enough like him to enjoy him and to enjoy all the gifts the way that he does. And all of it will be from him and through him and to him. In heaven, our joy will be complete and, and the glory of God will be at the center. And so think about that. The greatest inheritance today that we receive as, as the children of God, yes, we receive the world and everything in it. We receive God himself as our portion and our reward. And one day we will receive glorified bodies that will be able to fully enjoy God and his gifts. But you say, hold on, pastor, because there was a, a conditional part to that verse, right? Yes provided we suffer with him. In the same way our children learn to appreciate blessing through hardship, each and every one of us learns through what we suffer. And if we will not suffer reproach for Jesus' name, we cannot say we are God's children and his heirs. What this verse is saying is that our glory with him and our inheritance is conditional upon our suffering with him. Jesus said in Luke 9, 23, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. And then Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.12, he says, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. There's a promise for you. Put that on a coffee mug, right? Listen, church, there's no crown without a cross. There's no inheritance without suffering. And then you could ask, well, what, what kind of pain, what kind of suffering are we, we talking about? Well, really, we see the answer in the verses that follow. They speak of the groaning that comes from the futility of this fallen age. It could be any disease or persecution or even death itself. Any suffering that you and I might face and endure while trusting Jesus. Now, why does Paul tell us that suffering must come before glorification? Well, we saw part of the answer already. Remember back in Romans chapter 5, verse 3, Paul said this. He said, we rejoice in our sufferings. That's crazy, Paul. <laughs> he says, we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Suffering produces endurance or perseverance. It is that perseverance of our faith. Because here's the thing about suffering. Suffering keeps us from being self-reliant. Suffering keeps us from, from trusting in people and things. Suffering pulls out all of the, the props beneath us that we rely on and makes us rely more fully on God. You know it's true. You wish it wasn't, but you know it's true. If there were no difficulties, if there was no trouble, if there was no pain in your life, your heart would fall deeply in love with the comforts and pleasures of this world instead of falling more deeply in love with the inheritance that is beyond, namely, God himself. And so hear me today. Suffering is appointed for each and every child of God as a great mercy. Yes, it is a great mercy to keep us from loving this world more than we should. Suffering helps us rely upon God himself. Acts chapter 14, verse 22, Paul is preaching in Lystra and Iconium and Antioch. And what was his message? He said this, it's through many tribulations that we must enter the kingdom of God. And so I say that this morning to encourage you. Maybe you're like, Pastor, that's not encouraging. But I want to encourage you this morning. Don't begrudge the difficult times. 
Even when they seem like they're, they're too much to bear, keep your inheritance before you as a child of God, and then you'll be able to say what Paul says in the next verse. He says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present age, they're not worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed in us. Hear me, Paul was a man who knew suffering. He, he didn't have an easy life in the slightest. In fact, according to, to church history, he will eventually be beheaded, right? When reading these verses, you should not just assume, well, Paul had a high pain tolerance, right? No, I think that Paul looked at his suffering as being an integral part of his glorification process, and therefore, he said, my suffering is worthwhile. Listen, I know that goes against a lot of teaching in a lot of churches in America that says, as believers, we should be free from pain and guaranteed comfort, but can I just tell you, nowhere does it say that in Scripture. No, what scripture promises is suffering in this world. We all suffer. This life is full of suffering. And the question I think Paul is anticipating is, okay, well, there's all this suffering, Paul. Is it really worth it? And Paul says the suffering that you and I endure, listen, it can't compare to what is ahead. In reality, we as believers have the opportunity to view suffering in a much more realistic way than those who don't know Jesus Christ. Why? Because we understand the suffering of our Savior, Jesus. 1 Peter 2.21, for to this you have been called. You want to know what you were called to? Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you a, a, an example so that you might follow in his steps. We know Jesus Christ is our example, right? We're, we're called to, to follow in his steps, WWJD, right? What would Jesus do? He says, here's what Jesus did. He suffered. And in his suffering, he set an example. He suffered, now you suffer. You say, hold on, I didn't sign up for this, Pastor. I just prayed that prayer. I want that, I want that ticket, right? Christ left you an example to suffer like him. Why? Because first comes suffering and then comes glory. And hear me today, many will miss the glory because they want to skip the suffering. Again, there are those who would say, well, if God's really God, then bad stuff shouldn't happen to God's people. And I say, really? Jesus, the, the spotless, sinless Lamb of God, was crushed by the Father for the Father's glory, but you shouldn't have a bad day. I'm sorry. Who do you think you are? Like, do you have any idea what justice would look like in your life today based on what you just did yesterday alone, right? But we ought to see suffering for what it is because we understand the suffering of Christ, but we also see the suffering of creation. Paul says it's not, it's not worth comparing our suffering to what is coming because really there is no comparison. What is ahead of us is so much greater than anything we need to go through here and now. C.S. Lewis wrote these words. I love this. He says there are far, far better things ahead than any we leave behind. You say, well, pastor, you don't know what I've gone through. Pastor, you don't even know what I'm walking through right now, and you're right. And hear me today, I in no way mean to diminish or belittle the suffering you're experiencing. But I know when we look at our Christian brothers and sisters around the globe, many of them face death every single day. Many of them are maimed or tortured or even killed for simply refusing to deny Jesus Christ. But even when we think about them, even when we think about our persecuted brothers and sisters around the globe, they too will be able to say that their suffering could not be compared to the glory that will be revealed in them. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, he says this, for this light affliction, oh, it's, it's, an, it's an affliction, all right, but compared to the weight of glory, it is light. 
compared to the length of eternity. It is short. It's only for a time. And listen to what it is producing. He says this, it is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comprehension as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. The things that are seen are transient, meaning the things we see with our eyes, they're they're constantly changing, but the things that are unseen are eternal and unchanging. And that's why our hope is not in what we can see with our eyes, with with our physical eyes, if you will. Our hope is what we can see with our, our spiritual hearts that's based on the promises of God's word and the assurance of those things that they will, in fact, come to pass. Amen? Someday, you and I, we're going to get a glorified body. The older I get, the more I look forward to that, right? Here's the reality, church. However big or small your suffering is right now, it's only for a short time. It's only for a short time in the light of eternity, and it cannot be compared to the eternal weight of glory that suffering prepares us for. Look at verse 19. For the creation... The creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. When you talk about this idea of glorification, that that one day you and I will be completely transformed into beings that share Jesus' glory, you need to know that's something that all creation is longing for. Why? Because all of creation, the entire earth, came under a curse in Genesis chapter 3 because of the fall of man. Mankind's sin did not just affect mankind, okay? Sin affects the entire planet. Verse 20, for the creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself, listen to this, the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. If you underline or highlight in your Bible or you want to highlight that note sheet, Underline those two phrases, subjected to futility and bondage to corruption. Subjected to futility and bondage to corruption. That word futility is a, is a strong word, right? It, it means pointless or, or uselessness. That's what creation was subjected to. That's the world that we li- live in right now. It, it is full of meaninglessness. It's exactly what Solomon wrote in the book of Ecclesiastes. How many of you have ever read Ecclesiastes? You're like, man, this is, this is depressing, right? I mean, here's a guy, he gets all this wisdom from God. I mean, the most wise man that ever lived, and he looks at the world around him, and and what's his conclusion? It's meaningless. It's empty. It's filled with purposelessness. And, And when we understand that, we understand why people are so incredibly hopeless in our culture right now. Like when you look at our world and and you see hopelessness, understand that's the natural state of our world because it was given over to futility and that creates hopelessness in people's minds. Listen, there's a lot of things we could do to address the issues of our time. In November, we're going to have a a weekend here where we're going to be addressing the the drug epidemic. And I want to encourage you, even right now, set aside that weekend, be here that Saturday. We have a a brother coming in who's going to share his testimony, but also share how we can respond as a church. So please be here for that. But when we look at the world around us, again, we, we see all of, all of this hopelessness. And, and there's, there's so much that we can do to address things like addiction. But more than that, I believe we need to address hopelessness and meaninglessness. Because there are many in our world right now that are just trying to anesthetize things and make them go away and find a way to hide from the reality of the world that we live in because they see the meaninglessness. And hear me, I'm talking about those who don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. 
I mean, it kind of surprises me that things aren't worse. Because if you take Jesus out of the equation, I'm like, man, what is there to live for? You see, for so many people, their number one goal in life is to be happy. Oh, pastor, I I just want to be happy. And I'm like, good luck. (laughs) You're living in a futile world. This place is not a happy place. I mean, Disney's not even happy anymore. See what it costs to get into Disney? It's not a happy place. Again, Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble, but be of good cheer. Why? Because I've overcome the world. That's the only reason to be of good cheer this morning is because Jesus has overcome, and that that phrase, bondage to corruption. Understand, at the fall of mankind, all of creation was put in bondage to corruption. Scientifically, we call it entropy, right? Things don't tend toward order as evolution would have you believe. Things go from order to chaos. Second law of thermodynamics, all matter is constantly breaking down. Some of you knew that the moment you woke up this morning, right? All matter is breaking down. Things are breaking down. Our entire world has been given over to bondage, to corruption. And listen, I don't care how many Botox shots you take, eventually it's all going down. (laughs) Just being real. Someday you'll be in the grave. You may be a beautiful corpse, but you'll be a corpse, right? Why? Because sin and death entered the world. But when we think about God's original design, think about this. God originally created things to continue forever. Sin brought death into the world, but just imagine what the world would be like with no death and no decay. If all those flowers that you forgot to water, they didn't die, right? David Orta would have a beautiful lawn if not for sin, right? But right now, we talk about this, it is subject to futility, right? And and so creation is waiting. Think about that. I don't know how creation waits, but it's waiting. It's longing for you and I to be transformed because it knows the moment that happens, it's liberated from decay. When we are glorified, creation will be set free. Listen, I love nature. I'm a nature guy. I love to drive my Jeep through the woods. It freaks out all the hikers, right? But but honestly, I I think we we should be good stewards of what we've been given. I I do believe that. But hear me, your recycling will not save the planet. The Paris Accords definitely will not save the planet. It's only at Christ's return when we are glorified that things are set in order and so they will no longer deteriorate and they will no longer decay, they will remain. Think about that. You know, I think in heaven we're going to work, but it's going to be rewarding work. You're not going to weed a garden and two days later it comes back. (laughs) You're going to clean things up and they're going to stay clean. Amen? Praise God. Things will be set in order and they will remain. And so verse 22, Paul talks about the, the current condition of all of creation. He says this, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. The truth is that creation is broken and it knows it. When you look at the world around us, you ever watch those Discovery Channel things? And one animal killing another animal, killing another animal, right? Disney tries to clean it up. It's a circle of life. It's a circle of death, man, right? And so all of creation cannot wait for you and I to be glorified. That's the point at which it is redeemed. Now look at verse 23, and not only the creation. It's not only creation that's that's waiting for that day, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit. What are the first fruits of the Spirit? It's the indwelling Holy Spirit in us, right? We who have the Spirit dwelling in us, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Creation is not the only thing groaning. You and I, we groan inwardly. Sometimes we groan outwardly too, out loud, right? We see the suffering of the world around us. 
we, we groan for those who are victims of sin, victims of abuse. We groan over the direction of our nation as we watch it move more and more away from God and towards secularism. And then there's just the pain of our own physical bodies. So many just live with constant physical pain. But here's the promise for you. While we are already adopted as sons and daughters, one day we are going to be given the seal of our adoption. uh, adoption. What is that seal? It is the glorified body that you and I will inhabit for eternity. There'll be no more pain in that body. There'll be no suffering in that body. According to the book of Revelation, every tear will be wiped from our eyes. We will have redeemed bodies that are free from corruption and decay, and those bodies will be fashioned like Christ's glorious body. Listen, God doesn't ignore our physical bodies in his plan of redemption. His plan for these bodies is resurrection. The perishable body must put on the imperishable. The mortal body must put on immortality. This is our hope, and this is what we wait eagerly for. This is the future. This is the hope for those who are led by the Spirit of God because they are children of God. So the question, again, today, we've asked it many times, is are you a child of God? Have you placed your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, who conquered death and the grave, who promised he will come again for his own? Are you led by his spirit today? If so, then his spirit should bear witness with your spirit that you're God's child. And if that's the case, then the future is yours. But if not, i got to talk about the other side of that. If not, you will face God's justice. The reality is, every one of us must decide, and we need to make that decision while we still have breath in our lungs. We can choose to be led by the Spirit of God and live as adopted sons and daughters, or we simply live by the flesh and life is futile. It's meaningless, and then we die. I want to tell you today, there's an invitation from God's word today to take your eyes off of what is seen and to focus instead on what is unseen. Again, what is, what is seen is temporary. It is transient. And if that's all you're hoping for, you will at some point be left hopeless. But if your hope today is in what is unseen, it is unchanging, that hope will save you. We're going to talk more about that hope next week. Would you stand with me? This is our hope, church. This is our our great hope. As heirs of Christ, our inheritance is the world and all that's in it. Our inheritance is God himself. And our inheritance is that one day we will receive a glorified body. Heavenly Father, we just thank you. Lord, we thank you today for the promises of your word. Lord God, we thank you today that it is in that hope that we trust. Lord God, it's not in the things of this world which are transient, which are passing. Lord God, I pray today that you would take our eyes off the things of this world once again. God, that we would turn our eyes upon Jesus, that we would, Lord, that we would look full in your wonderful face. Lord, I pray that the things of this earth would grow dim as we understand your glory and your grace. And so, Lord, I just thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for that encouragement this morning from your word. Lord, we hang on to that hope. We give thanks because of that hope. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's worship him before we leave today. Let's lift our voices to him.